Every time I sing that hymn, I always remember the church I served in the late 1970s, and when I introduced or chose that hymn, I didn't know uh, that it was a, a totally strange hymn to that congregation. They did not know it, and when we sang it uh, once or twice, people got excited about it and said, this is a great hymn. It must be brand new. I said, look at the bottom of the page, 1912 it was written, and folks were amazed that they'd overlooked that hymn for so long. It became a favorite in that congregation. It's a, it's a strong prayer for God to work in his church. Well, we turn today in our continuing studies of the Gospel of Matthew to the 22nd chapter, Matthew 22. This is the longest gospel in terms of sheer material that it has to offer. It is taking us quite a bit of time, even though we're not covering every single paragraph or sentence of the gospel, but we're trying to give you the sense of the progress of God's revelation through this disciple, Matthew, whom God called out of a life of collecting taxes and being very concerned about purely worldly affairs to understand the kingdom of heaven and be a vessel to give God's message to us today. Listen as I read Matthew 22, another parable of Jesus in the first 14 verses there. Jesus spoke to them, the crowd, again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. When the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is the word of God from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. It's my feeling that one evidence of the general rising prosperity of our nation, despite perhaps current economic fears, has been a slow but steady trend in the greater lavishness of spending for weddings and wedding receptions. 
I've certainly been able to measure this even over the years of my ministry. By the way, surveys say now that the average, this means some are lower and some are higher, but the average wedding in the United States costs a bit more than $20,000. Now, maybe we need to call for an usher to bring smelling salts for a few fathers of daughters who didn't know that fact, but that's the fact. Forty years ago, you could hold a cake-and-punch reception after your wedding in the church fellowship hall, and that was considered to be fine. Today, brides and parents seem to demand a full-course meal at the best restaurant and the finest banquet hall they can possibly book. I'll express a humble opinion. You don't have to agree with it. These extravagant receptions sometimes begin to overshadow the church ceremony as the main event of the day. Now, among a multitude of costs that are involved in a wedding is the grand apparel that every principal person has to wear. And of course, first of all, the bride's dress. I was so proud of my daughter nearly 15 years ago when she purchased a dress for a few hundred dollars at a a sale, a great reduction sale of a um, last year's model, I guess it was. I don't know why wedding dresses go through last year and this year's models, but she did a great job getting a bargain. But they tell me these dresses can cost two, three thousand dollars or more very easily. And then, of course, all the men have to be in rented tuxedos, and every lady in the party has to be well outfitted, and it's a pretty expensive proposition. You know, on nearly all occasions in 2008, casual dress rules the day, doesn't it? I've actually been at funerals where people came in ragged jeans and t-shirts. I'm not kidding. But at a wedding, most guests seem to know that this is the time for your best. You'd better be outfitted in the nicest garments that you have. Well, our text today comes before us to challenge us about what we will wear at the judgment seat of God. How much thought have you ever given to that? The Bible says There's a general invitation given to the great wedding banquet of Christ, the Lamb of God. It's an eternal feast. And God uses that image to picture what believers who are the bride of Christ will experience when they are finally united all together with their groom, the glorious Lord Jesus, who bought that church, that bride, with His own precious blood. And the question is, do you know what it means to be dressed, even right now, in preparation for that greatest of all banquets? Here we have before us a parable told by Jesus. The main parable has its parallel in the 14th chapter of Luke. But the part we're going to give special notice to, verses 11 to 14, is unique to Matthew. A parable about a wedding banquet for the son of a king, and at the end, a man who was found there without a proper wedding garment on. It's a very dramatic parable in a string here of several through the 21st chapter. I looked last time at the parable of the wicked tenants 
It's addressing the same people, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. It's told in the public teaching of Jesus on probably Tuesday or Wednesday of what we call Holy Week, that last week of his life. He was there right near the temple teaching for anyone to hear, and we know the religious leaders were all standing by with their notebooks, writing down things they could accuse him of, and he was looking them in the eye when he spoke stern parables like this because they were warnings given by Jesus to the religious leaders of God's covenant nation, Jerusalem, that Israel had reached as a nation, not for every individual, but as a, as a nation. They'd reached the end of the line as being God's exclusive covenant people. And actually, last time in verse 43 of chapter 21, we read that Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to those who will produce its fruit. But besides merely addressing Israel, the covenant nation of 2,000 years ago, there certainly is a broader application to what is taught here. And particularly, it speaks, I believe, to nominal Christianity in our time. It speaks a message to anyone who believes responding to God's invitation involves a do-it-yourself approach, coming to Him any way you might please to come. Matthew 22 contrasts the gracious invitation of God to the indifferent and arrogant and rebel ways that men and women respond to that invitation. And once again, as we've seen other times in this gospel, frank words are spoken by Jesus himself about what can only be understood as a hell of regret awaiting those who presume that they can come to God without the robe of the righteousness of Jesus upon them. It's always good to be sure you have a a condensed and clear summary of what you're looking at. And if I could put today's text into just two quick sentences, here's what I would say. Not everyone wants God. And some who seem to want Him will only take Him on their own terms. Now I first ask that we look at Matthew 22, 1 through 7, which depict for us those who would not come to a wedding. Keep in mind the theme set for the ministry of Jesus back in John chapter 1, verse 11. You know that verse. You may not know the tagline, but the verse says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But all who did receive Him, He gave power to them to become the children of God as many as believed on His name. That theme is being played out in this parable and in the historic circumstances that were going on that last week in Jerusalem. Of course, a parable is a fictional story with true life elements in it. It's usually believable. Parts of it might be exaggerated. You're not always supposed to look for a direct equivalence of every element in it, but mostly for an overall lesson that it teaches. And in this wedding banquet, Jesus teaches about an imaginary king who gave the banquet for his preferred son, the crown prince. The next king was being married. And even though the circumstances might be fictional, the realities here are very much on point with the historic 
rejection of Jesus Christ by the leaders of his nation and on track with the attitudes of people who respond to the general call of God even today. Now, just think, any invitation from a head of state is something that's very exceptional. Once in a lifetime for most people. If you somehow discovered in your mail a richly embossed uh, invitation on the finest stationery, you said, oh, who's getting married? I'm not sure who this is from. You opened it up, and you found President and Mrs. George W. Bush invite your presence at the wedding of their daughter, Jenna. I would imagine you'd drop the thing, but then you'd pick it up, and, and you'd look at the envelope, and you'd really make sure it was addressed correctly, and you'd just be astonished. I'm invited to the wedding of the daughter of the president. And you'd probably clear your schedule and find a way to go. You might also, by the way, uh, just drop the hint with your neighbors that you were invited. Because they are not. Well, you know, banquets for weddings in ancient times were really, I made a comment about them being extravagant today. They were far more extravagant in ancient times. We have evidence right within the New Testament that these things went on sometimes for several days. They were the event of of the year and and, uh, the event of a decade if it was a king's banquet for the king's son. Now, we seem to be able to gather from this and other texts of the New Testament. Stop and think. You didn't have a postal system. You didn't have telephones. How would people come to a banquet? You couldn't just ride out and say, uh, this, you know, it's uh, 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. Uh, today at 11 o'clock, there's a banquet. I want you to come. That's not the way it happened. What we can understand is there was a, a first invitation that went out, and it was given by messenger to the specific people. It's going to happen on this particular day, and be ready, be prepared to get the summons. And then, of course, when the food was ready and everything had actually been put in preparation and people would be in a general state of anticipation who had said, oh, yes, I'll come, the messenger would go out a second time and say, now it's ready. You know, and if this was the American South, he'd say, y'all come. It's all ready. Let's come. The dinner is ready. It's time for the feast. Well, I think we're meant to certainly see God at work in this parable as the great host, the great initiator, the one who makes every preparation at his own cost and then initiates the invitation to go and boldly seek after his guests and encourage them, not even once but more than once, to come and gather and enjoy that which he's prepared, a sumptuous banquet. And so Jesus really is speaking here primarily about the second invitation. Tell those who have been invited. In other words, they were already invited. They already gave some indication. They know that it's coming. Tell them now to come. They said they would, so now give them the final summons. The food is almost ready to serve. Well, incredibly, the same people who said they would come, who've known for weeks that it was going to happen, all of a sudden in this parable have better things to do. They, it seems, 
And Jesus, of course, is exaggerating. This is a fictional tale, but it makes a real point. They have unnatural and bizarre reactions. In fact, if you would look at the parable account, parallel account in, in uh, Luke 14, you'd see that their responses are elaborated even more there. They give excuses, and all their excuses are blatantly shallow. Oh, uh, I'm arranging to buy a team of oxen. I think today's the, the day that I have to go check them out. Oh, I have a field that needs to be plowed. Oh, I've married a wife. She needs my attention, the kind of things they say in Luke. And you're given to understand that indifference is the problem. These excuses are not reasons. They're excuses. They don't care. They don't want to come. And so they make every possible emphasis on some everyday chore that really could have been rearranged. But say, oh, no, my, my everyday business is more important than this. We need to ask ourselves how many people make light of the things of the kingdom of God by making heavy their own everyday concerns, their business, their investments, their friends, care of their house or other property, all good things, nothing wrong with any of those things. But normal occupations, which are not wrong in themselves, can become sinister distractions if they are deliberately placed ahead of the call of God to attend to the things of His kingdom. Now, the original hearers of this parable would have marveled at the impunity of these people, at the, at the rudeness, that's all you can call it, the insulting behavior of these people who had said they would come, and now they're insulting the king by not coming. Matthew 22, 7 depicts a hard response towards these ingrates. There's nothing soft here. Remember, this is a fictional account, but Jesus paints this king full of rage. He was enraged. And he sent his army to destroy those murderers because they had killed some of his servants and burned their city. Now, we need to be careful sometimes about thinking that every detail of a parable exactly depicts God. And I would say here you need to be careful of ever thinking that God reacts to men in a temper tantrum. He certainly does not. And yet Genesis 6.3 correctly says the word of the Lord, my spirit will not always strive with man. There will come a time when my invitations, my graciousness, my, uh, my words to gather you to myself will stop. And there will be consequences. And here the consequences are obviously hard. From our 2,000-year vantage point distance from the speaking of this, it's rather easy to see an exact prophecy in what Jesus says here. And many commentators remark on the, the killing of these people and the burning of their village, what sounds very much like a prophecy of something that exactly took place 40 years here after it was spoken. In the sack and burning of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of its temple pulled down stone by stone until only a foundational wall on the west side is left, a lower sort of sub-basement foundation wall of the whole temple courtyard is all that was left when the Romans got done with the glorious temple. 
And Flavius Josephus, the historian of that time, tells, and he's, he's pretty well known for his accuracy as a historian. His account is that one million, 100,000 Jewish men, women, and children were killed in that Roman campaign led by General Titus, the son of the emperor, to eradicate Israel and its worship system, which effectually was done, and at least as far as a physical temple and worship system, continues to this day. What a prophecy Jesus was giving here of those who would not hear God's call. There was judgment for spurning his gracious invitation. Now, maybe you say, wow, God is harsh. He's really tough. How could he treat people this way? That's how some react to this. But really, your reaction ought to be, how could human beings so absurdly and rudely refuse the gracious invitation of God year after year and century after century? Well, that's enough for those who would not come to the wedding. But secondly, let's go on here in verses 8 to 10 to see the replacement wedding guests who are invited freely. The arrogant spurn him, but God is going to have people in his feast. And we see here now that he was ready to bring people regarded by the first rank of guests as the lowly outcasts, the undeserving, the poor, the folks of other nations who were despised for their skin color or their strange languages. And the king here says, go out to the street corners. Now, street corners in the Bible are places where the poor congregate, you know, where, the, where those who don't have jobs wait for someone to come and hire them, where the beggars are. Go to the street corner, said the king, invite anyone you can find. Fling open the palace gates. Let in the people of every class and nationality. And in verse 10, it makes it even more specific. All the people they could find, both good and bad. In other words, it didn't matter what they'd done. They could be thieves, robbers. They could be murderers in some way. They could be you know, deceptive husbands and fathers. Their morality is not going to be a test for the invitation of God to this feast. There's no entrance exam for the grace of God in extending the call to come into his kingdom. Certainly, you need to hear an echo here of something that is yet to come in Matthew, the the very concluding paragraph of Matthew in chapter 28 that we call the Great Commission of Jesus Christ, which says, go and make disciples of all nations as a consequence of the work of Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection and, and everything else, This, spoken about here, is now activated. Go, bring disciples in from every nation, the Bible says, according to the long-term plan of God in his sovereign election. There might be somebody who would read this, and again, be careful about literalizing details in parables, and they would say, well, it was sort of God's plan to open it up to everybody else only at this time in the life of Jesus when Israel had finally closed the door by their unfaithfulness. But you see, the Bible gives us a bigger view. 
You go back into the Old Testament and you can find any number of texts, texts that will show you that it was always God's view that this would happen. God doesn't do things on the spur of the moment. It was always His intention that many would be called from every nation and every tribe and every language. A, a text like Hosea chapter 2, verse 23 tells of the Lord saying this in far more ancient times than the life of Jesus, uh, something He was going to do and be seen doing. He said, I will call those who are not my people at that moment, recognizably, they're not my people, I will call them my people. And to her who is not my beloved, I will cry out, beloved. So God always planned to do this. And just days before his death on the cross, Jesus said, the effectual call of God, as the theologian puts it, goes to people of every skin color, every social class, every tribe, every condition, every previous moral background. The covenant people of God will not be recognized by the standards of their worldly resumes. They will be recognized by just one thing in this world because they respond to the overtures of God's grace in the way God designed that they would respond as His faith put in their hearts springs forth, takes hold of Christ, and they come, whoever they are, whatever they are, clinging to Christ for new life, forgiveness, as they trust and hope in Him. From the farthest islands of the world, they come as strangers and are gathered into God's family, grateful for the feast of divine gifts that is spread before them. Now a third part here, and maybe this is what your questions gather around. It is the oddest part of the parable to some ears. Let's look at the man who crashed the wedding in his everyday clothes. We read about the king entering the banquet hall. He has satisfaction now because the hall is filled, the food is being served, the guests are enjoying themselves. He looks around, and his eye immediately fixes on one individual in the assembly. Apparently, we're meant to believe that that this one individual had something unique about him. Out of hundreds, this many people, perhaps quite a few more people than are right here. One individual was different. He was wearing his dirty, everyday street clothing. I don't know what that clothing looked like. That detail's not provided. It might have even been clean. But the point was, it was not the clothing he was expected to be in. And the king addresses him in a non-confrontational way at first and says, friend, how did you get in without a wedding garment? In other words, there, there, there was some kind of a presupposed entrance requirement that you have a certain garment on, and he didn't pass that requirement. Now, don't you wonder what this was all about? Your mind is saying, well, wait a minute. Didn't, wasn't the call sent out to all kinds of people, poor people, uh, people of every station, people who couldn't afford fine clothes? How would the king now seem to be contradictory and say, you've got to have a certain standard of dress to come in? Well, the explanation is probably not as difficult or as confusing as it might seem to be. Interpreters are nearly united in saying we need to take a clue from the fact that first, he's the only person not wearing a wedding robe, and there were many other poor people. So it didn't seem that poverty could have been the reason for him 
not being properly dressed. Others were. The explanation actually comes from something that the hearers of Jesus probably understood quite well, and that's why it isn't explained. We don't understand it as well, and it it roots in a simple custom of the day. The custom of the day was if you were an aristocrat or a wealthy person, certainly a king, you had the means. When you invited guests to come to your home, whether for a visit or a, a banquet or whatever it was, one of them... You know, hospitality was a big deal then, a really big deal. They knocked themselves out for guests. You would, you know, you'd go sell your last cow to get something to, to feed your guests. And what rich people did when their guests came, remember, they traveled primarily on foot or on camels or something, and you arrive any kind of a journey, you're tired, you're sweaty, you're dusty, you're travel-stained, you know, and you want your feet bathed. You know that that was a custom. And another thing they did was provide their guests with a luxurious set of clothing to wear as their guests. And the richer you were, your status was marked by the fine clothes, the even silks perhaps, or fine wool or brocades or something that you would, you would give to a guest to wear the most honored clothing, better perhaps than what you wore yourself, to say, I honor you. You're my guest. Enjoy my house. Well, nearly all commentators presume that what Jesus is alluding to here is that the king had made free provision of fine clothing for his guests. Otherwise, how could it be an entrance requirement? How could he say, you know, how'd you get in the door without it? It was provided at the door. And the fact that the man can't give an explanation for himself, he seems to be shamefully silent, is at least a clue to the fact that He knows he could have had it, but he didn't take it. And we think that here is another type of arrogance that God condemns. The idea, in a sense, that I can be the guest of our God at his wonderful banquet that he offers for me freely to come, and I'm not qualified to be there, but I'll come on my terms, not his. This man perhaps pushed past a servant who was offering him a fine fur-trimmed robe, and he thought, just look at these conformist friends of mine. Why, we've stood in the street together and declaimed against this king and, and his pride and his riches, and now look at them bowing and scraping as they take his clothes and, and wear them like they were somebody. Well, I'm an individual, and I'll enjoy this feast just like they, but I'll enjoy it on my terms, not the king's. And you almost, if you think hard, can hear in this the whisper of the serpent to the woman in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that to you? Did God really require that? Do you actually think you have to do that to please God? And the independence that disobeyed God in Eden is on display here. I think God's Word gives us some real help in understanding the life application that Jesus was implying for us by the teaching of this parable, particularly its latter part here. In the call to, or the, uh, the call of assurance this morning in the service, you heard from Isaiah 61, verse 10. It's a verse that very directly impacts this passage. When the Lord said long ago through Isaiah, My God has clothed me in garments of salvation. 
and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Ezekiel 16 has a wonderful chapter that goes right along with this, and I can't read everything in it that applies. There's a whole section there where God, in a sense, tells another parable, an Old Testament parable, about finding a a disreputable woman who's been somehow harmed, a woman of the streets, a woman of bad reputation. She's all dirty. Her clothing is torn. It barely covers her body in a modest way. And, And the Lord finds her, bathes her, gives her fine clothing to wear. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like a My Fair Lady story, in a sense, there in Ezekiel 16. The Lord makes a lady out of her and dresses her. There we read, I dressed you in fine linen. I covered you in costly garments, and the splendor I gave you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. We know he's talking about more than just an imaginary tale. He's talking about what he does in salvation for Israel, for any individual. God finds us in our natural state, naked and wretched and filthy. We need cleaning up. We need covering. The gospel warns us, do not go into the presence of a sovereign and holy God in your ragged, stained work clothes, the clothes of your works. Jesus has already taught us in this gospel, Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who were thought to be the most humanly righteous anybody could be, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, the spiritual clothing we need is not human clothing. It's not our resume. It's not how well people like us. It's not how kind we are. It's not how well we do our jobs. The clothing we need for heaven is not hanging in our personal closet. Our work clothes do not qualify for heaven's dress coat. But the gospel, the good news of God's grace is that Jesus Christ has a robe for every child of his. It's a garment woven out of his own borrowed righteousness. Colossians chapter 3 refers to the... uh, the transaction for every Christian. Colossians 3.9 says that we literally put off an old self of shame and sin. And we put on a new self being renewed in the knowledge and of the image of God. Another picture of it is in Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us be glad and triumphant and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen has been given her to wear, bright and clean. And the Scripture there interprets itself and says, fine linen indicates the righteousness of the saints. And where do the saints find their righteousness? Only in Christ. I would assume children are still learning the simple story called the emperor's new clothes. This one goes back a long time. Adults know it, I think. Remember that fictional tale of an emperor who was very conceited, very proud? And a particular point of his pride was his clothing. He had a magnificent wardrobe full of suits and robes and all kinds of impressive garments, and he always was looking for more. The men's stores must have loved him. 
And uh, one day along came some tailors, and they, several of them came and gave the emperor a proposition. They said, O king, we know of your reputation. It is magnificent, and you are magnificent. And they build him all up. And they said, however, we can take you to a new level of magnificence with the clothes we will tailor for you. And they sold him a real bill of goods. In fact, they told him that these clothes they were going to make for him were so regal and wonderful and beyond compare that only the most royal eyes could, could really appreciate them. And he would surely be able to appreciate himself what they would do. So, of course, he handed over a few bags of gold, and the tailors came, and they measured, and they clipped, and they appeared to sew and do all kinds of things. And the king was a little bit troubled because as they were working, he couldn't seem with his royal eyes to see this material they were working on. But he was too proud to admit that he couldn't see it since he'd been told that royal eyes would appreciate it. So he was fitted for it, and the tailor stood back and said, Oh, king, magnificent, you are wonderful. And the courtiers, of course, not wanting disfavored, bowed and scraped and said, Oh, king, you look the best you've ever looked. And so the emperor went out into the streets and decided he'd have a royal parade and show the whole public how wonderful he was in his new attire. And the people bowed and oohed and odd, you know, they were all a little fearful of him, but behind their hands they were laughing. And it took a little boy to pipe up and say, Mommy, why is the king going down the street naked? Because the king, indeed, was not wearing any royal clothes. Well, there is no deception like that in the final judgment of God. There will be no self-deception, and God certainly is not deceived even now. His unerring eye sees who His people are and how they are dressed and what they think is acceptable to Him, and we are taught in the Scripture that when the Father looks upon a believer in Jesus Christ, what does He see? The mess you've made of your life up until now? The Scripture implies that so wonderful is that robe of righteousness that is brought around us, it's even a hood over our heads, so to speak. Because when the Father looks at us, all He can see is the glory of His Son. And when He looks at us, He therefore accepts us as He would accept His Son. When Paul spoke about his desires in eternity in 2 Corinthians 5, he said his his prayer for what he hoped for beyond death was that he might be, quote, clothed with a heavenly dwelling so that he would not be found naked. Well, there are too many people who are dressed in garments of good deeds, faithfulness to family, integrity, hard work, kindness, good citizenship, and all the rest, but they're not dressed for the wedding feast of the Son of God. And there are people who don't look to be much in this world right now, but they wear that wonderful robe of Christ. And they have nothing to fear from verse 13 of our text where this presumptuous intruder in the feast without the garment was thrown out. In fact, more than thrown out, he was thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because his personal best was not good enough to be presented to God. Our passage ends with that phrase we all know, many are invited, few are chosen. There's a sermon in that phrase that you don't have time to hear now. 
But it tells us that God has, has spread abroad the invitation, the general invitation. Some here, many refuse. But if they reject the invitation, they miss the eternal party. And if they try to crash the wedding by coming in their own fitness, they'll be thrown out. Because not everyone actually does want God. Some seem to want Him, but they want Him on their terms. Those who hear the invitation of the Lord will respond and will be received on the same terms that the Son Himself is received by the Father. Have you put on Christ? Do you know that the faith that only God can give is stirred in you to say, I take Him. I trust Him. I'm looking to nothing else but Him and what He is and who He is and what He bestows on me, His own righteousness. If that's true of you, you could sing and should sing with joy, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless. I'll stand before God's throne. May it be so. Amen. Father, Here's a great hope for us and a great certainty for us. May we hear that call and cling to Christ, who is our entrance to the feast, our entrance to a place in your great hall and even your family. Thank you for the work you do in giving us faith to trust Christ. In his name, amen.